0: Good morning, we are so happy that you have decided to start this new year, 2022, surrounded by friends and family and perhaps the Word of God. Our prayer for you this year is that God embody through you His hope for life and godliness. Now today I am thrilled because we begin a new quarterly study and we are looking at one of my favorite books, a book that will mine the depths of God's love for us and his desire for us to become who he has created us to be. I'm of course talking to about that epistle, the epistle of Hebrews. Now, Before we start, as we do every weekend, it would perhaps behoove us to begin by asking God to be with us. Can I invite you to pray? Father, we are thrilled that you have given us a new year, that as the mistakes and the problems of the past close, you present us with the opportunity for newness. Mm -hmm. We ask, Lord, that 2022 be a year of which we may say Truly, the God God has been good, and up to this point, the Lord has been with us. We pray that as we open your word, you may guide our study, that you may inhabit our conversation, and that you may move us to a deeper understanding of who you are. For we pray in your name. Amen. So friends, words matter. And whether you're a linguist or a wordsmith, or you simply enjoy playing Scrabble, you'll notice that the way in which we say things is is of paramount importance. Now, I want to talk to you just for a little bit about this concept that is present and prevalent throughout uh, the New Testament, and that is, of course, this idea of poetry. And when we think about poetry and sacred literature, we typically think about that wisdom literature that is part and parcel of Israel's wisdom tradition but you can find some nuggets of just beauty ingrained in particularly the epistles. Now, Hebrews is an interesting book. Much is debated about authorship, time, context. The book itself has shown us the fallout of employing merely a historical critical approach to scripture because after all, it's very hard to get truly behind the text, try as we might. But what it what I do find of particular importance is the emphasis that the author, whoever that might be, whether you align with the traditional idea of Paul or whether you believe it's one of Paul's inner circles, someone like Apollos, particularly this new idea that is floating around that perhaps and just perhaps Hebrews was actually penned by a female, maybe Junia, Whatever your view is, some things are evident. First and foremost is the fact that the author of Hebrews presents Koine Greek like nobody else. There are beautiful word pictures and an immense, um, immense array of literary devices that enrich the text and bring us closer to who God is. But as I began by saying, words matter. Now, Look at this example in case in point. I was looking, as I typically do, through the dictionary, and I came across this definition of poetry. Yes, poetry. That construct that has the capacity of bringing two souls together, of making people from different eras and different cultural backgrounds to connect. Perhaps if you're like me, it's a tool that's in your romantic arsenal and to which you owe your marriage, and your happiness. But notice how the dictionary defines poetry. Poetry, it's a noun. Uh, In the plural, love said noun is poetries, And the definition of it is literary work in which special intensity is given to the expression of feelings and ideas by the use of distinctive style and rhythm. Poems collectively constitute a genre of literature. Now, pause and think about that mouthful for a moment and tell me if you wouldn't agree that what I just read about poetry is objectively true. It is, isn't it? There was nothing in that definition that struck us as wrong when we're trying to de- define what this beautiful art form is. But there was something about conveying true truth in this dry method. I bet you that by the end of our time together, if I would ask you to repeat this definition found in most dictionaries of poetry, you would be at a loss for words. But what about this one? The way in which the Renaissance poet and painter and sculptor and artist, inventor, Leonardo da Vinci, baptizes poetry. He writes, painting, painting is poetry that is seen rather than felt. And poetry is painting that is felt rather than seen. Notice how different that sounds. Notice that the idea of words evoking sensations and feelings, mining the very depths of our existential mores, does something to us. You perhaps won't remember any of the Greek or the theological things that we will discuss during our time together, but I bet you, if we come together next week and I would press you to ask what poetry is, you would define it as paintings that can be felt. And so the importance of words, the importance of a language to convey truth. In other words, what we say is important but the way in which we say it is equally important. So let's talk about the ways in which Hebrews says some things. There's a couple interesting tidbits about the epistle itself. First off, we don't really know if we ought to characterize it as a genre in the epistle column, for it possesses no initial greeting or or salutation. We find in its pages 145 hapex legomena, and you're probably wondering, what is that? Well, a hapex legomena is a word that doesn't appear anywhere else in the New Testament. So there's 145 terms in the book of Hebrews that are unique to this book. But perhaps more interestingly than any of those other factoids is the notion that there are 10 words that appear in the book that appear nowhere up until this moment, in all of Greek literature. In other words, the author of Hebrews isn't just sharing truths. He is creating a new language, a new way of saying things. And it makes sense, doesn't it? After all, the author of Hebrews is recognizing something. He is noticing that in the light of the resurrection, things can never be said in the same way. Wolfrat Pannenberg, that Old Testament and uh, biblical researcher and theologian notices that there's something important about languages. He does a word analysis of the many ways in which the disciples and Christ's followers convey the reality of the resurrection. And he notes that up until that moment, the idea of a bodily resurrection is foreign to the Greco-Roman language. In other words, the experience of Jesus being alive needs to be true because the disciples create a new language for it. And this is exactly what the author of Hebrews is doing. He is coining a new language to speak about God's intercession and his love for us. My question for you, whether you're a poet or a painter, whether you're a skilled artisan, or whether you jumble with words is this, how capable are we to create new language in order to aptly describe what God has done for our lives. Pause and take a moment and consider what we've been through over the past year. Consider your struggles, your privations, your problems, those moments in which God felt especially removed. And then notice this. As the old wise man says, the fact that you can read and listen to these words is in itself good news. And it should make us laugh. You are alive. God has sustained you. He has brought you to this time with both Pastor Joey and myself faithfully week after week. And that is good news. So my question for you is simple. What language are you developing to describe the awesome providence in your life that the faithful God has for you? Well, let's look at this language, shall we? I'm going to focus primarily on four verses. They're located right at the outset of the epistle. In your Bibles, perhaps, you will find a superscription that says, God's final word, his son. Or you'll find something that reads like this, prologue. And this section is contained, as we said, in verses 1 through 4 of the first chapter. Now, at first, I'm simply going to read it. And I'm going to make then some interesting points about the reading. So, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior. To theirs. And maybe at the outset of our reading, there's not too much that jumps out at you. And so, indulge me for just a brief instance as I read only the first section of what we read in the Greek. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 reads, Polumeros kai And if you heard something without even understanding the words, there was a certain sound that should have jumped out. Every single of the important words that the author of Hebrews uses in order to start his epistle begins with the letter P or with the letter Pi. And what the author is trying to do is he's using something that we use sometimes here in our conversations together. He's using alliteration. And he's using alliteration both as a device intended for the audience to remember the truth that he is trying to convey, but he's also using it because there is or there ought to be a certain degree of aesthetics when it comes to sharing what God has done for you. In other words, we ought not to just share the fact of the incarnation, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus as if we were reading chemical formulas or mathematical equations? What would happen if we would understand this self-giving love that God has gifted us as poetry? What would happen if we, be, if we began to uncover the beauty and the aesthetic wonder of what God has done. Well, the author of Hebrews realized this, and so he says, God has spoken to us, and this is my feeble attempt at alliteration, at many times and in many ways. Now, at the outset, he's not only interested in using alliteration. He will use aphora, which is simply repeating the same words. Who can forget his famous chapter on faith? He will also use this linking of dependent clauses and subordinate clauses and principal clauses. He will weave them together as if they were a literary chain intended to cause some emotive reaction inside of us, much in the same way that poetry does. It's interesting to note that in this prologue, the main clause to which everything else is subordinate is that God has, that the Son, verse three, is the radiance of God's glory. That is the main point that the author of Hebrews wants to make. Every other clause in the Greek is subordinate to this reality. And what the author of Hebrews is trying to say is something that the patristic fathers utilized a lot when they were trying to defend the orthodoxy of the Nicene Creed. Now I know that was a handful. So let me explain it briefly to you. There was a raging debate about the nature of Christ. As people were trying to determine if Jesus was human, if he was divine, what to do with his nature. And so the patristic Fathers looked at the book of Hebrews and found a word, a Greek word that simply reads hypostasis this is to say, of the same essence. And so they were able to biblically say that Christ in Nicaea was of the same essence as, as the Father, both fully human and fully divine. And the idea of the identity of Jesus is the primary driving force of this whole, of this whole epistle. And you might say, well, what does that have to do with me? Well, the the rest of the epistle is going to be subordinate to this notion that Jesus is of the same essence as the father but here's the good news because uh, jesus is of the same essence of the father and because jesus is of the same essence of what uh, as us jesus in essence is the link between the father and us and so the author of hebrews will say without a doubt that we can approach the throne of the father boldly because we possess the same essence as Jesus, who in turn possesses the same essence of the Father, and this is good news. I no longer have to be defined then by my mistakes, my shortcomings, my baggage, because I am defined by the principal, primary clause of my own story, which is Jesus is the Son of God. That's good news. It's beautiful news. But the author of Hebrews doesn't just give us this primary clause by which to live our life. He also provides us with rich and deep metaphors. He uses a lot of them, by the way. He talks about the metaphor of the athletic games. He talks about the metaphor of law, of education. He talks about the metaphor of artistry. He talks about the metaphor of cults and the cultic experience. And most of the metaphors he uses are foreign to the Jewish mindset, save that one that has to do with cultic experiences. They're intended to broaden the audience. They're intended to introduce the gospel, the good news, to a broader world. Here's the second thing. As you develop language that defines your personal experience of beauty with God, make sure that that language is growing to be more inclusive rather than more exclusive. The author of Hebrews could have retreated to the world of Jewish thought. Instead, he uses metaphors that the Greco-Roman world would have understood. There is, by the way, a metaphor that is felt, though not directly stated, throughout the whole of the book. And that metaphor has to do with a journey. In essence, the journey that Jesus will embark on from heaven to earth to the grave and then to the right-hand side of the Father is a journey that ought to be mimicked by us. And so the author understands that while the journey for each and every one of us is different, our destination remains the same. So here's what he's doing. Not only is he making the language more inclusive, he's also attempting to find touch points where the language can connect with other people's stories. Now, let's face it. 2021 was a deeply polarized year. But here's the thing. The gospel, the good news, the beautiful aesthetic idea that we are of the same essence of Jesus that is of the same essence as God is not intended to divide or to polarize. It is intended to find connection points both with each other and with the culture that we inhabit. One more thing about metaphor. Metaphor represents a way of integrating symbolism into our stories. And the beauty of symbols is that they can be interpreted in different ways. In other words, you need to provide, when you're developing your own language to define what God has done for you, you need to be open to interpretive license. To have those stories then be taken by people whom you love by people who surround you in the community, and then interpret it in their own context. Now let's look a little bit more at the text and some some things that I would have us note. We talked a little bit about how the author of Hebrews is trying to expand his understanding of what the gospel is and make it palatable to a Greco-Roman world. This idea of connecting Plato and the gospel is evident at the outset in the very first verse. He says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through a son. Now, in our modern culture, we believe that the most, the more viewpoints or the more ways you say something, the closer you are to achieving truth. You want a variety of sources, limitless source material, to buttress an argument. Not so for Plato. You see, Plato believed that the many ought to point towards the one. In other words, the validity of a theory was based on its simplicity rather than its variety. And so... The author of Hebrews, understanding this viewpoint, says in the past, God spoke to us in that beautiful way of alliteration in many ways and at many times. Diversity. But in these days, he has spoken to us through a son. And so the one is more valuable than the many. What is the author of Hebrews saying? Well, the author of Hebrews is saying that Jesus represents the apex of the interpretive and experiential reality of his followers. Let me simplify that for you. When you want to f- see how God feels about something, look at Jesus. If you want to understand how God feels about, fin- about your finances, about grace, About mercy, about who your neighbors are. Don't go mining through the Bible to look for the one controversial text. Start by Jesus. The the idea that the author of Hebrews wants to develop is that our language not only ought to move towards more inclusivity and to finding connection points with other people's story, but our language ought to be simple enough to reflect the reality of. Jesus. There's one more thing that he does through these four verses. He engages in what we in biblical literature called, call a chiasm. And we've talked about this a lot in our time together here. A chiasm, which comes from the Greek letter chi, which uh, is kind of looks like an X, is this idea that clauses begin to connect and relate to one another um, as, they're de- as the author is trying to develop a point. Now, I'm going to try and see if we can tease out this chiasm together this morning. It says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets in many times and in many ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through a son. Point number one, he has spoken to us, the idea and the power of the word, both spoken to the prophets and spoken through the Son. Whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. Point number two and point number three. Jesus is the heir of all things and he is the creator of the universe. And there's an interesting paradox here because what the author is saying is that Jesus, was present from the very beginning. He was the creative force that forged the universe. Again, this idea that Christ is co-eternal with the Father, to use our old Adventist lingo. No possibility to believe here that Jesus is a created being. Jesus is one with the Father, but he is also heir of all things. Why? Well. I find it best in this formulation that the ancient, that the old theologians had about who Christ was. It states, he cannot redeem what he hasn't embodied. In other words, if we are to believe that we can become heirs like Christ, then Christ too must be an heir. And so in Jesus, you have this paradox of humanity, the heirs and divinity, the creator of all things, and they merge and exist in complete harmony. So those are the two other points that he tries to make. Then our primary point, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Now, If we're right in noting a chiasm, we should note that, again, we're going to focus on the power that the Word has, just as the section began. I hope you're with me in looking carefully at your Bibles. Sustaining all things by His powerful Word. And then he moves on to this idea of Christ making the universe and Christ sustaining the universe. Notice what he says. After he had provided purification for his sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty uh, in heaven. Now, we we see how this links, I hope, but there's also something verbally interesting that is happening in verse 3. The tense, the verbal tense that uh, he, the author of Hebrews uses to define what Christ did as he is providing purification is the aorist participle. Now, aorist is something that happened in the past. And the participle has to do with the way in which it happened. What the author of Hebrews is trying to say is that Jesus' act of purification is an act that happens in the past, and you can take that as a fact. There is. It is not up for debate, nothing can change it, nothing can alter it, it is not ongoing, it's an act that happened, and as we say here in America, you can take it to the bank. So, what is, what is the author trying to say? Well, he's trying to say that your aspiration of being an heir, of being of the same essence of Jesus, is something that Christ has already done. He has already purified you. He has already enacted the process by which you can approach the throne boldly. So, we continue with this idea of Jesus being an heir and making us heirs. And so, we should end with that in verse 4. Let's see if we're right. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to their. And so there's this idea of the name that Jesus is an heir to. And the word and the language here ought to remind us of the Old Testament, this idea of the name. It's a notion that appears time after time throughout the pages of the Pentateuch. And it's the notion that the name for Yahweh is Lord, that God has a personal name and that you can know that name because God is a personal God. And in this section, what the author is closing the prologue by saying is that Jesus is Lord. And so we celebrate as we read Hebrews, not only the poetry and the beauty and the inclusivity and the new language, but above all things, we celebrate the Lordship of Jesus. May he be Lord over your life forever and ever. Joey, let's talk about Hebrews, one of my favorite epistles, if if we can call it an epistle, and definitely a book that gave me fits both in undergrad and in graduate work because the Greek was just so difficult to understand and translate.
1: It's no John, right? It's John. not John. No, no, no. John uses very simplistic Greek, but Hebrews, oh man, there's so much richness and beauty, like you said, but for a beginning Greek student, oh, it's, it was terrible. it's a challenge.
0: It was, especially with those words that you don't, f- and, constru- and constructs that you don't find anywhere else. Yeah. In the New Testament, and you're trying to, to figure out what to do. And I remember uh, my uh, Greek professor, whom some of our audience might know, uh, Bernard Taylor, uh, used to tell me when looking and trying to translate the book of Hebrews, he simply said, you're just going to have to memorize it. <laughs> and so that was his, uh, his piece of advice. And I found it semi-helpful, although I don't, I Cannot say that I know
1: all hundred and forty-five heptasyllagmina that the word, that the book itself uses. I know, like you said, he's he is inventing a language. He's creating a language, and not just any language. He's like you you pointed out, he's creating a beautiful language. He's using poetry, and like we know, um, even in English, poetry is probably the more dif- the most difficult type of language to interpret if you're learning English, right? It's, it's not self-evident. And the same is true in Greek. So I, I want to ask you at, right at the outset, why this focus on beauty? Why is it so important for, for this author to, to make a beautiful language to describe this truth? Mm.
0: I think it has to do partly with the context in which he's living in, right, Mm -hmm. Joey? So you know that uh, Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, and then the Neoplatonists after them focused on a lot of different parts of life. They believed that philosophy, for example, was about metaphysics, Mm -hmm. right? These things that we know, like the nature of God, and and these things that we're called to, uh, to investigate. They also believed that it was about epistemology, um, which is what we know, and how do we know what we know. Mm. Um, They believed that it it was also about ethics, and um, we know that Scripture is very keen in in trying to create an ethical paradigm for us to follow, much like uh, Aristotle does in his Nicomachean Ethics. You don't have to remember that, by the way. But the Greeks believed that none of these ways of understanding the world mattered Mm -hmm. if there wasn't aesthetics. Mm -hmm. And so they judged the validity of one of these theories not just on how salient it was, but on how beautiful it was. Mm -hmm. And I think too often, both in New Testament times and then throughout the history of the church, we focused on truth at the cost of beauty, and so we have this this intelligent, I think, aptly defined and able to def- and defensible argument for the existence of God and the incarnation and the experience of Jesus. But sometimes we approach these themes with the same level of interest as we would no offense to you physicists out there, uh, physic, uh, physical form, formula or a chemical reaction or a mathematical equation, yeah. and I'm sure our, math- our mathematicians there find beauty in equations, yeah. uh, but let's face it, those of us who don't understand, again, the language find it impossible to find beauty. Yeah. And so I think it's it's this drive that human beings have, right? that we, there is something within us that recognizes and deeply yearns beauty. Um, and the author of Hebrews, I think, moves the conversation away from just truth presented dryly to truth presented connected with beauty, because it's easier to identify with. I know you've read this, the study of babies, um, and let's say this at the outset, beauty is subjective, uh, but they presented babies with pictures of people who would be considered attractive and symmetrical in our, in, in our conceptions of what beauty is. And there was something within the babies that clicked and they, they connected better with the pictures of things that were symmetrical. Um, rather than things that were asymmetrical, yeah. and so there is something within us that pursues this idea of subjective beauty, and I think that's something that the author of Hebrews is trying to connect with.
1: Wow! Yeah, that's so true. I mean, we can we can look down on that and say, well, not everything that's beautiful is true, but in a sense, we all, even even today. If something sounds good, we're more likely to believe that it's true, mm-hmm. right? Um, even in mathematics, like you talk about, there's there's a, there's a concept of elegant equations, mm-hmm. right? That there's an elegance to it, and that elegance leads to truth. And um, what Occam's Razor in in mm-hmm. philosophy, the the idea that the sim, the most simple um, version of what is possible is more likely mm-hmm. to be true than a complicated
0: right.
1: complicated. Um, a uh, way of of thinking about things. So um, there is that 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 feeling that things need to be a little bit beautiful to be true. The true things are elegant and beautiful and simple as as you pointed out as well. So this this idea of the beauty of truth. Um, and so that that seems to be what he's doing here as he creates his language, He's creating that beauty.
0: Yeah, I mean something. Ha- something is true not because it only is in not because it only is verifiable. Mm-hmm. I, I think we we now inhabiting this meta modern age again a, a term that none of you have to remember, um, is is this idea that truth is um, or this argument that truth is subjective, um, and so truth is dependent and contingent on your circumstances and your background and your ethnicity and your experiences and a lot of things. And where I, while I do think that there is some rationale for that as, as believers in a God that is ob- objectively true, mm-hmm. I think we have to find a way to, to connect with people who are having these discussions. Mm-hmm. And so maybe a way to go is prescribed by the author of Hebrews, who says, hey, what if truth isn't verifiable? What if truth is deeply moving? And what if truth elicits this emotional, re- this emotional response? And what if truth evokes awe and astonishment? What then? Um, And so I think way before these conversations of postmodernism and what is true, the author of Hebrews is saying, look, if we we look at stuff that is verifiable or that can be argued for, we're going to get in trouble. Mm -hmm. So let's instead transfer the conversation to truth as something that evokes awe and wonder and astonishment from us. And that's, I think, what he's doing in this prologue. He's trying to give some awe and some astonishment to the to this audience that would have been very well-versed in Plato and Aristotle and Socrates.
1: Wow. So he's taking something that is true and showing the beauty of that truth because he, he, he knows that that beauty is important right. for the person who's listening. And it's true, I mean, we've especially within Adventism, like you've pointed out, uh, we've at times sacrificed beauty for the sake of -hmm. truth. And what we mean by that is we've made it very dry. We've Mm -hmm. taken something that is a beautiful truth and explained it in very dry terms. And yet what we're discovering is that we humans often make our decisions, not just rationally, but also emotionally. Mm-hmm. That there is an emotional aspect to it. And unless we emotionally respond to the truth, we can say, yeah, that's true, but it doesn't evoke a change in our lives. Only when it connects to our emotions does it actually have that power to change our perspective and our behavior and all of those things, our beliefs and behavior. And so that seems to be what he's doing here, the author is doing here is by by taking this this truth and showing that beauty, he's mm. making it that much more compelling.
0: Mm. I love that. And I love that in as we're trying to find ways in which a, in which not only Adventism but Christianity can enter into the arena of conversation and thought today. Mm. Right? So if people are saying, hey, look, truth is subjective, mm. and we come in and we say, Well, when we say, No, this is true then there's kind of a breakdown in in the conversation. Mm. But if we say, yes, maybe truth is subjective, but so are emotions, right, and so is beauty. So let me share with you a subjective story to which you can respond subjectively. I think it's much easier then to converse with uh, the current dialogue that's happening outside of, of Christendom in, in ways that are, that are going to build up and that are going to buttress our case for Christ, much in the same way that the author of Hebrews is trying to do. Mm-hmm. Listen, he's saying, if the conversation is about Greek philosophy and Plato and Aristotle, then I'm going to use Platonic and Aristotelian language to enter that conversation, if right now we're having a conversation about truth as subjective and beauty, then perhaps we ought to use Mm -hmm. that language to come into the conversation rather than uh, build up a barrier and say that that's something else. What does, uh, in Tertullian's terms, what does Jerusalem have to do with Athens?
1: Yeah. And that's, that's what you pointed out that he, the author is doing here, is that he is building that bridge. He's making a connection. Mm-hmm. He's using metaphors, like you said, to connect with not just the Jewish audience that he's writing to, but for the outside world, using languages that are familiar, a language that is um, that can connect to the experience of the Greco-Roman mm-hmm. world. So we're not saying that truth is subjective. What we're saying is that, we need to have if we're needing to be conversant with people who do believe that truth is um, subjective how do we create metaphors that lead them so that we can have that conversation mm. instead of just breaking down the bridge and saying well you and I disagree it's irreconcilable let's move on mm-hmm. right so building those bridges yeah exactly
0: exactly yeah. and it, and you don't have to sacrifice truth on the altar of dialogue and mm-hmm. i think that's that's the beautiful case in point of this epistle you can have truth and you can defend truth vehemently i mean in hebrews you have at least for my money the most eloquent construction of a of a basis for the divinity of christ mm-hmm. right yeah. you have that and that's why when we were facing questions about the nature of christ Theologians came back to the to this epistle because it, it provided a very concise argument for that truth. Yeah. So you don't you don't sacrifice to truth on the altar of. Com- of, of trying to fit in or trying to converse, what you do is you find new ways in which to package that truth. Mm. And I think that requires some innovation. Mm. And so sometimes I think what, what we need to be clear up, about is ways in which our language, as administs particularly, can be a bit more innovative. Mm, yeah. You
1: know, that reminds me of um, a person that we haven't talked about much lately, but we did right at the, at the beginning of, of this Sabbath school series that we've been doing, is Scott Cormode. Mm-hmm. Um, and he talks about how innovation in the church context has to be an innovation of meaning. Mm-hmm. You know, there's lots of different innovations out there, innovations of products, innovations of methods. He says innovation of meaning because what he means by that is that we're bound by a tradition. We're bound by uh, what the Bible says. That there There is no... There is no um, flex there Mm -hmm. per se, but how do we convey that meaning in new ways Mm -hmm. that are more meaningful to -hmm. the people who are receiving Mm -hmm. it, right? So he talks about taking um, ancient Christian practices like the practice of of hospitality, Mm -hmm. right? That the lesson talks about the practice of hospitality and repackaging that in a way that it feels like hospitality Mm. to the people that are receiving it. And what what that takes is fully understanding what is the point of hospitality. He defines it as making outsiders feel like Mm -hmm. insiders. So then it doesn't have to be practiced exactly the same way that Mm. it was practiced in um, ancient times. it needs to be practiced in a way where mm. people who are now feel like they are insiders, even if mm. they they are currently outsiders or outside of the community of faith. So, so we can do that with also the truths about who Jesus is, mm-hmm. is to understand fully we need to have a clear grasp of what that truth is. That way we can communicate it in a language that it connects mm. in a meaningful way to the people around us.
0: Yeah, that's. I think that's the key. And uh, I've heard you mention this and just so appreciative of, of that insight because it was really transformational for me, this idea that real innovation is contingent on, uh, on adaptability of meaning. Mm-hmm. And I think um, this is going to be, by the way, the only place uh, out there that uh, we can link uh, Scott Cormode and Ludwig Wittgenstein. But Wittgenstein talking about meaning and language says that we all play these language games mm. and that the real point of language isn't simply to convey information. There's other ways in which you can do that ultimately. So what is the real point of language? And he says that it's to touch a note, or to pluck a string, mm. uh, or to blow a note. On the trumpet or the guitar, or as he will say, the keyboard of imagination. Mm-hmm. And so the point then of language is to have us ima- to have us imagine something. And I can just picture the people listening to this um, epistle and hearing that message, and hearing that the word is now become humanized in Jesus and that purification has already occurred Mm -hmm. and that the same Jesus that created the world inhabited a human body and purified us through his death and now is living and breathing at the right hand of the Father and that his name is greater than the name of angels because his name is Yahweh the Lord. Mm -hmm. And that just what that does to to a people that have experienced hopelessness Mm. and that have experienced denigration, and we know know who the primary members of the early Christian church that would have read this are, and now they're saying, and by the way, that is good news because you have value, because Mm -hmm. you are of the same substance as Jesus. And that connects you to have the same substance as God, and what that would have done, right, for mm-hmm. for their self esteem, for the for the way they view themselves, for the way they view the world, it's really striking a note on the keyboard of imagination. And uh-huh. so I think that Cormode is right in saying, "Hey, it's an innovation of meaning." And so my question is, as you're developing your language, mm-hmm. and as our friends up there up there are, are, are developing their language. How do we remain intentional mm-hmm. about being innovative in meaning? Because I can hear the collective gasp of our viewers saying, Yeah, but I need to have a firm foundation. And so we don't, again, we don't want to sacrifice and move into the moros of relativism. We want to build on a a firm foundation, but we don't want to have that firm foundation become a prison uh, that we can't escape from. Wow.
1: Yeah, I think it starts by what you're saying. We have to have a firm foundation. Um, I've been reading this book called Change by Design, Mm -hmm. um, and it talks about using design theory outside of the realm of what's been typically thought of as design to innovate in other realms, right? But one key thing that the author talks about is the importance of limitations. The importance of that—that that true innovation happens when there is a clear, clear um, limitation that you're bound by. And for us, I don't know if limitation is the r- right word, but we are bound by by the truth that that is revealed through Scripture and through the life of Jesus Christ, right? And so that that true unless we have a clear grasp of those bounds and of what that is, we can't really innovate Mm. because innovating will actually change the meaning Mm -hmm. rather than repackaging it like we're talking about if we don't have a clear foundation. So I think that's where it starts is having a clear foundation and clear idea of what that message is. And when we have that clear message, then we can take that and innovate on and, and making it practical for the people that are around us. And that's mm. I think that's, that's the second aspect is not just having a foundation but now taking that foundation that that principle and making it practical for others. Mm. And to ask ourselves, is this just something that I'm just shouting out there out there that doesn't have any purpose in in other people's lives or does this have relevance to the people around wow. me? Right?
0: Wow. And as you were th- as you were saying that Joey, I I started thinking a lot about how we often like to talk in our own echo chambers. Mm. Um, and we start shouting, and we are abhorred by the fact that nobody's listening to us yeah. uh, other than, you know, the people that already agree with us. And so just just think about what the author of Hebrews is doing for a moment. I, I As I was reading and studying this week, I, I just thought about you, and I, I said we cannot end our time together here without getting kind of your perspective on this. So the author of Hebrews says that in the past— uh, God spoke to us in many ways and at many times, and he talks about scripture, and he talks about the prophet, and in essence, what he's doing is he's talking about uh, the witness of scripture, the Old Testament. But then he says, in these last days, he has spoken to us through a son. Mm. And I really latched on, maybe it's my Adventist heritage, but I really latched on to to that construction. These last days. Mm. And so I started thinking a lot about the conversations that we're having and how sometimes the dialogue doesn't change that much. Uh, I can imagine in several uh, Adventist congregations, we're having conversations, for example, about this pandemic and how that's a sign of the last days. And we're talking about uh, registration and vaccine cards and the inability to buy and sell. And we're linking these these current events with this long Adventist heritage and language that we have. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't want to say that there's anything wrong with that. But what I do note is unless you're really familiar with that language and with those whole tradi- eschatological tradition that Adventists has, have, it's going to sound as though we are actually speaking to a very secluded group of the population, to a group of the population that already hold certain beliefs. I'm not saying we shouldn't speak to that group. But what I am saying is it seems that when we focus on these ideas of the last days, on what the government is doing, or what the beast is doing, or what we ought to be doing, or what uh, America in light of Revelation 13 is doing, that's for you that, that know, that's a little bit of inside language for you guys. Um, we're actually limiting the capacity of the of our message because we're limiting its audience. Mm. So my question is, if the invitation of Hebrews is to allow the son to speak to us in these last days, what does that look like?
1: Wow. Wow. Way to throw me a fast pitch right at the end of uh, our discussion. Um, I, I would say we need to be a little bit more inclusive about what the last days means Mm. because we often when we talk about last days we we talk about maybe the period right before Mm -hmm. Jesus comes again right Mm -hmm. which that is part of the last days but in biblical language the last days actually began with the first advent of Mm -hmm. Jesus right that's the language that's why um, the writer of Hebrews can say in these last Mm -hmm. days and that was you know a (laughs) A long long time time ago ago. right so so uh, because there is this idea that there was, and you you brought this out beautifully when you were talking earlier, that there, there was a newness that happened when Jesus came. Jesus changed the picture. Not that he totally switched what God was doing. He is a continuation of the tradition uh, that, that's been um, woven throughout the Old Testament and what God has been leading his people towards. But when Jesus came, it brought a newness um, to to the message, there was innovation, there was change. So much so that, you know, it throughout the book of Hebrews, um, the people who, who the author is speaking to are struggling with this concept of, how much of the Jewishness do I need to keep right. in this new world that now I'm in? You know, they have this new faith, but old ways that they're clinging to. So, you know, do we still need to be circumcised? I mean, how much of that ancient, that old practice do we need to keep on? Right? So there, there was definitely a struggle with the newness that Jesus brought. And so uh, to answer your question of how, how we can be, how, how we can communicate this idea of the last days in more of an inclusive manner, is to talk about the newness that Jesus brought. Mm. And that really is the foundation of the faith that we, we were talking about. and what you said, it, that in the importance of creating our language that we focus on Jesus, Right, so what is the newness that Jesus brings, mm-hmm. both in his first coming and that He will bring in His mm-hmm. second coming? And keeping our eyes on both of those things, I think, will help us to navigate this this meaning as 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 we enter into trying to innovate and and mm-hmm. and communicate it in ways that are relevant to the people.
0: Wow! Us. So maybe instead of worrying about vaccine mandates and vaccination cards and restrictions and Revelation 13 and America's role and the persecution and the papacy and and all these other things that we worry about. What if we worried about becoming a radically hospitable community? Mm -hmm. What if Adventism became the most hospitable place on earth? Mm -hmm. What if Adventism focused on radical inclusiveness? Mm -hmm. What if Adventism folks focused on faith that was not not judgmental? What if Adventism focused on being incarnational in the same way that Christ was incarnational? Mm -hmm. What, What would happen when we take these? old ideas that transformed the world, mm-hmm. and we package them for today in these last days. I think that's, that's a difficult task, but it's a task that we need to embark upon nonetheless, because mm-hmm. there's a world out there that doesn't need more division or polarization or judgment or anger or rancor. It's a world that needs to believe the good news of being heirs, think about it, if you and I are heirs, that means that we're connected in some way. Mm. And if I'm connected with you in some way, then you're not the enemy, you're not the other, you're not the one that I need to be
1: suspicious of. Mm. You're the one that I need to get to know. Yeah, I love that because because that focuses on the things that were, it is, and will be important Mm -hmm. to Jesus. Right? Those were his priorities when he he came the first time. Those will be his priorities after when he comes the second mm-hmm. time. Right. So focus on those things. Not that you know prophecy is important. Prophecy is important because God gave it to us, right. and there it gives us hope when we hit those markers. It gives us hope because we realize that God is still in control mm-hmm. when things seem out of control. That's an important message. Mm-hmm. But but not as a way to divide us Mm -hmm. because God is trying to actually unite us and bring Mm. us closer to him.
0: Well, I want to leave it at that because I think we just heard one of the most profound things that we will ever hear from an Adventist church. And that is the moment that prophecy becomes a tool to divide, Mm -hmm. it is something other than what it was intended to do. And so... Joey, thank you for that. That that level of profundity, um, I think, would, would do us well to use and utilize in these last days. As you always do, can you close us out in prayer?
1: It's my pleasure. Good and gracious God, we want to thank you, first of all, for sending your son, for coming down here to be with us. You didn't have to do it. You could have just left us to our own devices and just cut bait and said, well, I'll just start over with a clean slate, let them just destroy themselves. But your great love for us inspired you to come and be with us, to die for us, so that there's a chance that all of us could come back to be with you. So we ask that you inspire that kind of love within us as well. To make that our priority as we communicate to the world around us is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: May the Lord reign supreme in your life throughout 2022. God bless you and see you next time.